0: like show business like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing
1: that extra bar.
0: Gerald Nachman's been an entertainment critic, humor columnist, and feature writer for some of America's leading newspapers. He was the theater and film critic at the San Francisco Chronicle for 15 years. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, GQ, Esquire, and the Los Angeles Times. We wanted to get Mr. Nachman on the show for years, as we were knocked out by two of his previous books— Raised on Radio, which chronicles the rise and fall of classic radio broadcasting, as well as Seriously Funny, the Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 60s. We still hope to talk about both those works at a future date, but Gerald Nachman has a new book out that discusses a giant of television who is not as well known as he should be, perhaps, to the younger generation. The book is right here on our stage tonight. Its title may clue anyone over 45 as to whom we're talking about. Its subtitle surely will. Ed Sullivan's America. During a 23-year run starting at the dawn of commercial television in 1948, Ed Sullivan pretty much ruled Sunday nights. While the program seems best remembered for its appearances of Elvis and the Beatles, it was an extraordinary variety show, which we've not seen the likes of since it ended its run in 1971. Gerald Nockman has been as thorough as ever in his research. Noted Dick Cavett, right here on our stage tonight is a shining gem. You can keep it on the bedside table, open it anywhere, and be highly entertained. We're pleased to finally say, Welcome to Radio Parallax, Gerald Nachman.
1: Great to be here.
0: Well, in a way you and Ed Sullivan apparently go way back as a teenager <laughs> you wrote your first criticism and it was of his show.
1: I was just in high school and uh I don't know what impelled me to do it, but I went I had a new typewriter, I guess, second hand typewriter and I went into and I you know, we were watching it and I thought, well, I don't know, I just wanted to get it off my chest. I don't know why, what, <laughs> what it, that was my first review of anything and I just went to my room and banged out a little review of The Ed Sullivan
0: Show. Well, Sullivan's last show aired in 71, uh, and I think just how huge that show was is perhaps not clear to some of our younger listeners. How can we explain to them, you know, uh, this to people who never saw the original?
1: Well, the comparison I always make is to say that it was, uh, the average uh, viewership every week was 35 million people. Last year's uh, finale on American Idol was 45 million people. And we are now twice as big a country as we were, you know, 71. So, so he's drawn 35 million people, which is, I don't know, one out of every three or four uh, people in the United States is watching that show every Sunday night for 23 years.
0: Well, The Sullivan Show was considered uh, sort of the last hurrah of vaudeville. Can you talk a little bit about what vaudeville was and what variety shows were? Since at this point, they both uh, seem to be long gone.
1: Yeah, you're right. Well, vaudeville was uh, a live version of what TV variety shows were. Uh, Vaudeville was a succession. You would go to a theater and you would watch a variety of acts, uh, hence the term. And, you know, they would have all kinds of, you know, singers, comedians, jugglers, acrobats, even opera singers, some classical uh, performers. And it would be, I guess, two, three hours, something like that. Pay a quarter, I guess, in those days. And, uh, and TV variety shows were similar, but very different. Cause they, I say, you know, they were, uh, Sullivan's show is a streamlined version of vaudeville. Cause he had an hour, only an hour. And he packed in a lot, he packed seven or eight acts in every, every show. So he would trim down a comedian to about five minutes. Then a singer would get maybe one or two songs. So that's kind of the difference. And, uh, and also, there was no. They were similar in this fact that a lot of variety shows, not like Sullivan's, but other variety shows, they were hosted by people like Dinah Shore, and uh, Gary Moore. People in that era. There was a lot of banter between the host and the and the and the performers, and and the performers would come back three or four times, and they would do sketches. There was none of that on the Sullivan show. It was it was really kind of an assembly line of of of, of entertainment.
0: Well, Ed Sullivan, he was a newspaper man. He wasn't a show business person per se, but he picked the talent that appeared on the show. He blended what he thought was highbrow with what America seemed to want and wind up influencing the national taste. And I think this is sort of especially remarkable since we, as we see today, these decisions are networked, they're corporate decisions, and Ed retained control all those years. How did he do that?
1: Well, he had a background, even though people, viewers at the time, wouldn't re- didn't realize that he was not just the guy... He was kind of a stumble-bum on TV, but he was also the co-creator and co-producer of the show, and he was very, very adept and savvy behind the scenes as a producer. And he'd grown up with vaudeville. He had, and as a Broadway columnist, he'd gone to, you know, part of his his beat was going out every night, going to nightclubs and going to Broadway shows and concerts and whatever. And uh, he would see everything, and he had a real sense of, that what entertained him, he figured would entertain the viewing audience, and most of the time he was right. He wasn't an opera fan per se, but he thought that was good for us to <laughs> see an opera singer every every so often, and a or a or a ballet dancer, or a ba, or you know the Moise of dances from Russia. He would bring in a lot of dance troops and stuff, and he just mixed it up. It was a, it was just a, a little of everything for the whole family. That was the idea programming the whole family now the idea everyone in the family watched the same show that idea now seems incredible to anyone like, as a teenager even in the 30s maybe but the grandparents parents and kids all watch the same show of course there are only three networks on so you're gonna have a lot of choice
0: right I remember watching with my dad my grandparents and it's just something you don't see anymore well, uh, shows where unknowns try to become stars were with us from the various er- the earliest days of television, they're still with us with American Idol and such. Ed Sullivan was kind of legendary for the number of guests who saw their careers boosted by a shot on his program. Can you talk about some of the artists that uh, that Ed helped?
1: Well, first of all, there's kind of basically a misconception. Well, he helped everybody that was on the show, but there was a little misconception that he discovered a lot of talent. He really didn't. He was not much of a risk-taker, and people he, that... The, the entertainers he would have on a show had almost always made it in some other venue, whether a recording artist, on stage, on radio, or in clubs. So he wasn't, as I say, he didn't like to take a lot of chances. But if you were on the show, like a comedian told me, if you were on the show once, that would guarantee you a year's worth of bookings. Wow. So it, it really had an enormous power in those days. and uh, And that would really certify you as a legitimate you know, a star, and, you know, not everybody that was on became a star, but many people did. Uh, some people were sort of virtually launched that were not very well-known, like Carol Burnett had had been in a few review musical reviews in New York, but when she first played the Ed Sullivan Show, she was not known to that many people, not even in New York, and uh, she sang a song and it caught on, and uh, he had her back a few times, and from there she went to the Gary Moore Show, and then she got... Uh, Broadway musical, and then she got her own show.
0: Well, uh, until I read your book, I didn't realize that even Broadway shows benefited from Ed's support. He was located on Broadway, and we think of things like West Side Story as can't miss, but it it really was Ed Sullivan really helped that that show.
1: Very good point. Uh, He saved a lot of. He saved a lot of shows because uh, the one that's usually credited with being saved, uh, but there were many. But Camelot was one. The uh, Lerner and Lowe. Musical with uh, Julie Andrews and Richard Burton, Robert Goulet. The, the show was kind of limping along because it, it opened only a few months after the Kennedy assassination, and because Camelot was a, had been connected to Kennedy's favorite show. But anyway, it, people didn't really want to go and be reminded of it. So they, but Sullivan had an, an excerpt from the show on a few a few numbers, and people were lined up around the corner the next day and. He did that for many shows, not just musicals but plays. Plays that were hurting that he thought was, were worthwhile. And he had, over the 23 years, about 400 excerpts from Broadway shows.
0: Well, you mentioned those Broadway shows. Apparently uh, some, of these, some of the only video recordings we have of some of the original cast like Julie Andrews, Andrews playing Eliza Doolittle and My Fair Lady, those are still available to us through the record of, of The Sullivan Show. It's quite a remarkable record.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's the, in many cases, it's the only... Uh, proof that those shows ever existed on tape—they were uh, live, but they were, but they were, uh, you know, they were on kinescope. So they had the kinescopes, and then after a while, the show was taped. Not—he didn't like to tape. Almost the entire run of the Sullivan show was live.
0: Well, I noticed that there's been a lot of repackaging of those shows. Uh, things like rock bands on Sullivan, and and, and that's, I guess, uh, bringing bringing Sullivan to a whole new generation.
1: T V had two weeks of Sullivan's rock acts. They're, you know, you can buy these compilation uh, discs from the M. Sullivan Show. There's about a dozen out. Uh, during Pledge Week, they were running, uh, you know, all the, all the rock acts he first had on, beginning with, I think, Bo Diddley was the first person he had on. And Raha, actually, uh, R&B. And, of course, it all began with Elvis. We all remember that. <laughs> or Some of us do.
0: <laughs> and the Beatles. Uh, and the Beatles. I, I certainly saw the Beatles. I don't think anybody in America missed that one.
1: No, exactly. Or people, as they say in the book, even people who didn't see it were there. Claim they were
0: there. <laughs> well, you know, about twenty years ago, there was a Best of Sullivan VHS tapes. I dug those out to look at uh, for the purposes of this this interview, and I was just knocked out by what I saw. You've got like Ella Fitzgerald singing a duet with Sammy Davis Jr. It's just oh, hard yeah. to hard to imagine them or like the Rolling Stones on TV now. And that was that was business as usual for Ed. Yeah, and
1: often on the same show. Yeah, <laughs> often on the same show. And and Alan King, or a well-known comedian, George Carlin and Richard Pryor were on before they kind of went a different direction.
0: The book is Right Here on Our Stage Tonight, Ed Sullivan's America. We're speaking with author Gerald Um uh, The title of your book, Right Here on Our Stage Tonight, is, is itself kind of amusing in that it's a phrase Ed might have used from time to time, but it certainly would be used by Ed Sullivan impersonators, and there's probably nobody in the history of TV whose stiff style was so hilariously mocked by by numerous comics.
1: Yeah, he, oh, he said that all the time, Right Here on Our Stage Tonight, he had that <laughs> peculiar way of talking that all the Impressionists uh, have done. The show was successful, but he was not in the early days. And he was vilified, he was made fun of, he was mocked by Impressionists later on, and he w- and the critics took him on. They really didn't think he was any good. And uh, William Paley, the head of NBC, founder and head of NBC, figured he would probably be replacing it, Sullivan, because he took such uh, heat from the critics. But Sullivan was really a feisty guy, and. He wrote letters back. He wrote very hostile letters back to, to TV critics, which the point I make in the book is uh, a real performer would never have done that and ruined his career. <laughs> but Sullivan was not a real performer. He was a, he was a colleague of these TV critics, another, just another rumpled newspaper guy, and he didn't hold them in any special law. So he, he, he wrote back some really nasty letters to, to critics, and he was a very, uh, very thin-skinned, very, very temperamental Irishman.
0: Yeah, your book certainly outlines some of those those feuds with Walter Winchell, Jack Parr, Steve Allen. He 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 got in a lot of fights.
1: He did, as I said, he was a, he was kind of a hothead. He would calm down quickly, but he did blow up. He didn't like to he 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 didn't go picking fights. Some like Wal, Walter Winchell liked to get embroiled in feuds and all. Sullivan, but Sullivan would would say things you know, and uh, then regret it later. But by then it was too late, and so he did have a lot of feuds. He had a Feud with Jack Parr over the how much money they were going to pay. Because when Parr was the host of the Tonight Show, you know they play at the time they only paid three hundred and twenty dollars. and They probably don't pay much more now. Sullivan was doling out five, six, seven thousand dollars every every week to to headliners, and uh, he didn't think it was fair for Parr to have people on his show every night and not pay them any, and pay them so little, and uh, so Sullivan took on Parr and. Par challenged Sullivan to a duet on a show, and it never happened. Uh, part sort of chickened out at the end, but uh, so that was an example of a feud that he would have. And he was a sentimental Irishman in a way, but he was also very, very, very tough. And he'd been a he'd been an athlete in his youth, and he he didn't take anything lying down. He didn't like to be crossed. He didn't like to be mocked. And but as I started to say, that uh, all the impressionists came on and made fun of him. He later decided, all right, I can't. Fight him! I'll join him. And so he would have these mimics on, and then he became part of the part of the joke, and he began to laugh at himself, and that, and that really helped warm him up. And he stopped fighting it, and he just uh, he went along
0: with it. Well, since Ed was playing to a live audience, uh, he, and it was often, it seemed to be kind of distracted. He was famous for that. There were the gaps were always possible. And I, I for me, I know a lot of, uh, of viewers watching Ed Sullivan. Part of the entertainment was <laughs> what was he's going to screw up next? Yeah, and right legendary for them. You, you quote one in the book that's just an absolute classic. Ed's saying at one point, let's hear it for Jose Feliciano. He's not only blind, he's also Puerto Rican.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, I've got about 20 or 30 of them in the book because they were just classic. And uh, he, he he introduced the musical comedy performer in the audience. You know, he used to have celebrities sitting out in the audiences. as uh, Let's have a big hand for Dolores Gray now starving on Broadway, <laughs> and uh, you know they are just some just some wonderful stories. He, he was always blanking out on names. Even he had the Supremes on many times. He loved Motown. He liked the, and he had them on. And one time he couldn't think of their name, and he brought them on as now let's really hear it for the the the. The Girl
0: <laughs> Well, you know you, I, I, you mentioned the fact that he, he did bring on a, a lot of black performers. People don 't think of Ed Sullivan perhaps as someone involved in civil rights, but he fought sponsors, as you outline in the book, and network forces alike to put black performers on television and took quite a bit of heat for that.
1: yeah, that was one of his that was one of his his, his greatest legacies. to back up a little bit he 'd been a sports writer, so he had mixed very freely with black athletes in his youth. He thought he had no bigotry in him at all. And in those days, uh, TV was, you know, 98% white. It was very rare to see a black performer. And, I, and I've quoted some black viewers in the book, or some performers also, who said it was, you know, if there was going to be, uh, if Nat King Cole, say, was going to be on the show, or Sammy Davis, they would all gather, you know, it was a big event in, 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 in the black world to watch a black performer. So he was very generous about that. He would have black, he just wanted people who were talented. and And then to move forward after he, moved from being a sports writer to a Broadway columnist. He he would regularly go up to Harlem and cover the clubs up there, the Cotton Club and the Apollo. And he saw a lot of he a lot of acts that nobody in America had ever seen, except maybe in New York and maybe black audiences. Uh, so he had a he had a one-footed uh, a tap dancer named Peg Leg Bates, <laughs> and he had on a wow. guy named a, a black vaudeville performer named Pig Meat Markham who later. Became a star on the lap and as uh, Here Come the Judge. That was his line. Right. But he would he would have novelty acts on of all kinds and just a lot of the com- black co- comedians and and you, you you very very rarely saw that as I said on on any other variety show.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the book that at one point Ed puts his arm around a black athlete on stage and there were just howls of protest from around the country.
1: Well, uh, the South, you know, yeah. Southern affiliates objected. He. Yeah, he he would embrace Pearl Bailey say, or Ella Fitzgerald, or God forbid, actually kiss him on the cheek or something, or shake even shake hands. Yeah, he would hear from sponsors. Uh, sponsors were very uneasy with that. If you if a white uh, performer uh, shook hands with a black performer, it's it's kind of hard to believe in this day and age. Yeah. But. It was it was really a different world then, and so the book, besides being a history of the show, and a, it's also kind of a kind of a kind of a microcosm of the of the country at that time.
0: Comedians told you, like George Carlin, you know, if, if they may be asked to cut like a minute or two out of their act, and that's that's very tough for a comedian.
1: There were there were many comedians who had to put up with that, but you know, they wanted to be on the show, so they just uh, they had to do it. And often they would hear about it. I talked to one comedian who. He's not well-known, but he's a friend of mine. He was walking on stage. He played the show twice, and he said, uh, as I was walking out, Ed said, Ed said, I need a minute out of your act. You know, and comedy comedy acts, except maybe for Henny Youngman, are pretty structured. <laughs> uh, a line you mentioned early in your routine may pay off later, because he figured comedians could cut their act easier than anyone else. And I guess they can, but you can't cut a, half of a song, but you can, cut a, you can cut some lines out of a comedy act. And another thing about comedians... If he hadn't seen them in person, he would have them come over to his hotel. Ed and his family lived in hotels their whole life. They lived in the Monaco hotel on Park Avenue and 59th Street. And he would come and have them try out for him alone. So, comedian, so Ed is sitting there with his clipboard in the ballroom where he tried them out. They would come over and have to do their act. And, you know, no laughs. Ed, a very dour guy, you know, he would just sit there kind of frowning and and the comedian didn 't know what if he was if he was a hit or not, and you know probably usually they were, but they you know they really had a, they really had to sweat that
0: out i 'm sort of stifling laughter because in that exact context, one of these tapes showed Alan King describing what you just mentioned and looking at the camera and saying, "You know in real life ed was as, was as funny as he was on stage <laughs> no
1: right well uh, Dick Martin of Ronan Martin said he didn 't have any sense of humor. Phyllis Diller claimed he didn't have a sense of humor, but, you know, uh, other comedians did. Uh, Shelley Berman said he, had, he helped his act. He really had a... He knew what worked. And, he, you know, so you get different stories from different comedians and decided to do this book because in the, the, the book you mentioned earlier called Seriously Funny about the rebel comedians in the 50s and 60s, I got some great Ed Sullivan stories from the comedians who are the best storytellers, of course, and they remember every... Every slight and (laughs) grudge. Uh, So he told me some great stuff, which is in this book.
0: Well, you always research uh, these books apparently very thoroughly, and I I was sort of tickled that you, I guess, dug up the legendary uh, uh, comic act whose fate was to try and go on the Ed Sullivan Show the day the Beatles were on. And I don't know why Ed didn't start with the Beatles at first, but apparently he didn't, and these poor people had to try and hold down the screaming teenagers before the Beatles.
1: Mitsy McCall and Charlie Brill—they were a new, young comedy act. They just got married. They'd just been married, and it was their big moment. And they were going to finally—they were going to be on the F. Sullivan show. They couldn't believe it. This is their, this is their moment. And and they arrive at the theater to see hordes of teenagers yelling and screaming and And Frank Gorshin was on that night, and they knew Gorshin. And they said, "Well, gee, that's gee Frank is really drawing a great crowd here tonight." They didn't know the Beatles. Well, I guess they knew the Beatles were going to be on, but they didn't really know. They had probably heard of them, they were in show business, but they had no idea that they were going to cause the ruckus that they did. So they, so this poor comedy team, it was their big moment. They honed their act, and they went out, and, you know, they were just buried that night. Nobody remembered them. It's very sad, and I, I have the whole story in the book about... How, how John Lennon was wandering around backstage before the show and went in and got a Coke, and they didn't know who this guy was. They thought he was weird.
0: I can't resist. He, he gets to do a, a caricature of one of the comedians on a, on a yeah. napkin, and they thought nothing of it and, and tossed it out.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, if they kept it, they would have probably been able to retire off of that <laughs> so later.
0: Very enjoyable book, full of all kinds of anecdotes. I hope people will uh, will read it and maybe complement that with some of the DVDs that are out now. That That's a good combination. And just, i got to say, before before we go, uh, you know, watching some of those Senor Huences, Senor Huences, <laughs> I still just, he still puts me on the floor 45 years later. I, yeah, I,
1: and you can't describe it to anybody. It's no. It's an indescribable act, and yet he's funny. It's just timing. He doesn't do anything that amazing. The content is no, nothing special. you got to see it to believe it, really. And, it, it's, and I'm glad to hear you say because it, it is still funny.
0: He was a crack ventriloquist. He would do the whole bit about uh, singing while he's smoking a cigarette. It's just,
1: had the, the guy with the head in the box, who so he would talk to him, and the, and, the, and the guy would answer in the box, but in a muffled voice. And you sort of forget that that was he was doing that himself.
0: You right, know? right.
1: I've never seen another ventriloquist do that.
0: Well, uh, final question. Uh, it's, it's probably an impossible question. There's so many great Ed Sullivan stories out there, and your book is, is, is very extensive. But is there one? Is there a story that sticks out in your mind?
1: There's a comedian. Probably a lot of people don't remember. Maybe older people do. Called Jack E. Leonard, fat Jack Leonard. He was a big, rotund guy. Yes, funny guy. He wore, oh, you remember. I well, do he remember. was young, and yet, yeah, he he wore a Panama hat, which he would spin around after he told the joke. But anyway, Leonard was a feisty guy like Sullivan, and they, they used to have these backstage arguments all the time. And Sullivan told him one time, he said, You've got to cut your act down, Jack. He's, he asked Leonard, he said, uh, What can you do in five minutes? And Jack Leonard said, Boil two eggs. <laughs> But there's a lot of stuff about, as I said, the comedians, uh, an older comedian is now and is almost 90, I guess named Jack Carter, told me great stuff about how, how Ed would just blow up if he thought anything was in the least bit risque, because he really did gear the show for the family audience.
0: The book is right here on our stage tonight. We've been speaking with uh, entertainment critic and author Gerald Knockman. It's been a pleasure, Mr. Knockman. I hope we'll have you back on to talk about those other two great books you've written
1: love to. And I appreciate the questions. You really read the book closely. I'm very uh, appreciative.
0: All righty.